The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, great to see you. Good to be here. And certified financial planner, professional Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. And who was just on vacation with me in South Carolina <laughs> with his two little ones and my daughter and 28,000 other people. <laughs> it was a great time. We had a great time. Gotta love the, I love the Carolinas, and we went into downtown Charleston, South Carolina, and boy, they talk about a city that's got it together. Right. I, I felt safe. It was clean. Hmm. Uh, just not a lot of the hassles. Yeah. It's easy to drive around. It's yeah. really spectacular. Yeah, they, they, they take care of their horses there. In the summertime, they have a, a tour where you uh, yes. get a wagon, and the horses get like a half hour off and get uh, bathed down in between runs. Uh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Ryan's going to want that now at our company. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one perk we don't have. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And uh, somebody who went on that uh you know the the, tra- the trail with the horses, or you know the city tour with yeah. the horses. He said they spent about half their time talking about how well they take care of their horses, <laughs> uh, et cetera. So of course you do. You can call in with your questions at two one seven three five six nine three nine seven, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at three five one five three five seven. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor, conducting your own research and due diligence. And everybody should have a financial advisor, in my view. Everybody would be happier. Right, Ryan? I don't know about that. Is that a shameless commercial? Could be. (laughs) Could be. Hey, I'm a little rusty, you know, coming off vacation. Well, Fred, uh, everybody's talking about inflation. Right. Okay? But I look back at about, oh, a little more than a year ago, on March 17th, 2020, Bank of America's Global Fund Manager Survey identified uh, coronavirus as the biggest tail risk and remained on the top of the list for 10 months. But I'm, it, you, you've reminded me that the S&P 500 prices bottomed on March 23rd. Okay. So even though, though there was 10 months of continuous, this is the biggest risk, the stock market uh, bottomed well ahead of it and, of course, went to record highs. So now that the Bank of America's monthly global fund manager survey that was just last Tuesday. Higher inflation is now the consensus. Mm -hmm. 35% of the survey's 194 respondents who manage a a combined $592 billion worth of assets said so. Translation, investors are worried about inflation. So are we we maybe in for another lesson that if, if, if it's on everybody's minds, including most investors, and it's the one of the most searched words uh, on Google, I'm from some, an article yeah. I read. Um, I'm just wondering if this isn't, okay, it's going to be identified month after month after month, and maybe the market's done. Well, you know, you would think the market's not far from an all-time high. Somehow yeah. it's discounted that possibility. Right. In. Well, I think it depends on uh, policy. That usually we, we talk about policy not being the determining factor, but I think that uh, at some point we have to wean ourselves from the uh, a stimulus situation and go back to a more normal situation where people actually 
have stronger incentives to work. Uh, uh, I went the opposite direction last week to uh, California, and there were signs around like $30 per hour for a glazier for someone to replace windows. And uh, McDonald's had $17 per hour plus educational benefits for anyone who would work there. And I think that's not because the economy is strong. It's because it's difficult to get people to come back into the workforce. So I think we have to make some hard decisions, and the stimulus uh, probably was a a wise thing to do in the uh, in the aftermath of the COVID crisis. Yeah. At some point, we have to have to wring yeah, ourselves yeah. away from that. And there seems to be no signs of that. I mean, here we have a booming economy. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Retail sales are higher than they've ever been. Um, in, in fact, probably where they would have been in a two yeah. to three years if on normal trend line. Uh, and there really is no signs of that. And the European banks are doing incredibly well if you look at their stock prices. Yeah. So even the Europeans seem to be liking what <laughs> we're doing over here. Do you think the fact that there's – that well, it's not a fact. you think that the concept that maybe the Fed kept us from going into a, de- a depression and kind of managed the crisis pretty well, uh, that maybe there's a reluctance to criticize the Federal Reserve or second-guess right. them? Well, I think so, but the, the, I think the Fed probably realizes it better than the uh, administration. But again, every societal ill that uh, existed before the COVID crisis became uh, a focus. So every, everything that uh, uh, was bad or, or less than desirable now has to be fixed. Again, uh, it's home care workers, daycare workers, teachers, health care workers, uh, whoever, they, they obviously had their issues before the COVID crisis. They may have a have a, um, a impact of the, in the crisis, but again, all, all society ills can't be necessarily remedied immediately just because of the, the COVID crisis. So I think we have to go back to a situation where there's some choices to be made, and the choices obviously have to be that uh, we can't do everything. It seems like the Fed did a really good job. You know, in times of crisis, people demand more cash, and we've seen trillions of dollars put into the money supply. That by itself isn't inflationary, in my view. Uh, it's just kind of meeting the demand that people want safe assets and they and they they want to hold those, so they provided that. But it would seem now that we might have a lot of unwanted money because the demand for currency, cash, cash equivalents, has really gone down. But the Fed hasn't reserved its quantitative easing at all, and it seems that this un that this unwanted money now is what's pushing up the prices, you know, of housing prices, rising commodity prices. Uh, we've had dollar the dollar as much is you know almost at its five year low. Uh, that can always turn around, uh, mm-hmm. but it seems like there's lots of unwanted money. In other words, it's kind of like more money chasing. Right, and it's also found its way into the stock market. We're only a couple percent off of all time highs, yeah. and even at that, I, I as of this morning or yesterday's close, it looked like the S and P five hundred is up about twelve percent. I'm rounding. Right. Uh, year to date, uh, global portfolio like the one we use is probably up fourteen, fourteen and a half percent, just year to date. I mean, that's I mean, yeah. even after last year's turnaround, it's just right. Well, I think we have incredible. a kind of, uh, in a sense, a kind of grace period because we've had now almost forty years of uh, of low inflation or disinflation early on, and that has in fact uh, quelled expectations about inflation. But again, uh, that that uh, expect, low expectation can be eroded over a period of time. I think now is the point where we have to have to start thinking about that. So again, I don't think it's a a matter of an immediate uh, movement back into uh, uh, serious inflationary problems. But I think this is the time when, when we have to take steps to 
to deal with it. And it again, I think the, the Fed, like every other uh, uh, political institution, the Fed is less political than most, uh, they can't uh, deny any kind of worthy goal. So now the Fed is talking about uh, doing things to uh, deal with redistributional issues. They're talking about uh, uh, environmental, green, uh, climate change kind of issues, things of that sort. And um, I would argue that they, that they don't, that we talked a long time about the inability to fine-tune. They can't necessarily even fine-tune monetary policy, but when they move into these other areas, which they have no experience and no uh, ability to affect very directly, I think it makes their, their mission more difficult. I think so, too. I, I, I am concerned somewhat uh, of a, re, a Fed that, and of course, they're, of course, they're worried about tightening too early. In 2018, they yeah. started to tighten a little bit, and the stock market went down a quick, yeah. sudden 20%, rounded up slightly. Uh, and so there's probably, that's probably <laughs> an all-too-recent reminder, fresh off of a global crisis. Um, but it seems to me that you know the Federal Reserve can be too tight or it can be too loose. It can yeah. be doing just the right thing, but if it's too tight or too loose, it it would seem to affect the current, I mean, the future value of the dollar, and that just seems to create more uncertainty. Uh, and and to me, uncertainty, there's always uncertainty. It always drives yeah. me nuts when people say, oh, why did the stock market fall this week? Well, it was too much uncertainty. It's always yeah. uncertainty, but you can increase the level. You can inject a new uncertain right. uh, factor into it, and then I think that becomes the the enemy of investment. And yeah. I think it right. sort of inhibits growth by encouraging investors to play a safer route instead of going into new ventures. Right. Well, I think there is a, uh, what, what economists would call an asymmetric loss function. I think the both the Fed and the uh, administration uh, think that uh, being too austere now has great, uh, much greater potential damage in terms of political uh, fallout than, than uh, being open. So even though they probably, uh, in a 50-50 kind of thing, would say that now is a time for a little bit of tightening. They don't want to make a mistake of tightening too soon. So again, if they tighten too soon and we move back into a, a slow growth situation, that's bad immediately. If they don't tighten and we get inflation three or four years from now, they, they probably don't uh, don't really uh, uh, care as much about that. So again, it's, it's kind of this asymmetry in terms of of doing one thing or doing the other. So right now, I think the, the rule of thumb is err on the side of, uh, of being too uh, too open as opposed to too, uh, too uh, strict in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. And that seems to be in line with some of the political thinking of a go big, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have uh, pontificated that uh, Obama didn't go, in the, you know, the, the, and the politicians didn't go big enough after the great financial crisis. Yeah. But, but now going big, I think, is taking on a, second, a, a different meaning that uh, I think most everyone agree in, in kind of general terms that infrastructure is really an important thing. But right now the, uh, the kind of uh, stimulus situation is being blurred into the uh, infrastructure kind of thing. Infrastructure should be infrastructure, not just support of every, every uh, good thing you can think of. And, that, and it seems like now it's been expanded. So this, we're, we're, instead of moving from a, a crisis situation to a more long-term kind of situation, we seem to be segueing into kind of a, a continuation of it under a different name. And I, I mentioned retail sales. I read an article from Brian Westbury of First Trust and uh, wrote that retail sales are now higher than if there had been no pandemic at all. I'm paraphrasing here. 
retail uh, sales are far above where they would be if COVID had never happened. Even with no increase in April, retail sales were 17.9% higher than they were in February of 2020, pre-COVID. That's the fastest gain for any 14-month period since 1978-79, but it's a lot different than that period. That period between 78 and 79 had double-digit inflation, as you recall. Yeah and versus just a little over 3% yeah. over this period with that big of a gain. Yeah, yeah so I, th- I think there, 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 is a, there is another explanation, though. I think that uh, a lot of this is pent-up demand. We had two things happen dur- during the uh, crisis. One, people couldn't do what they wanted to do. And secondly, they were getting uh, an infusion of, of uh, cash that they had no place to spend. So I think in a certain sense, it's making up for lost time. But again, that that uh, can't continue forever. Now, again, I, we could have a recorded message here, but the, the thing I always say is that uh, despite all this fear about inflation, the uh, long-term interest rates really haven't uh, had, had big jumps. It's moving a little bit in terms of higher interest rates, but not, not hugely. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, you know, some people think that's another distortion, these low interest rates, and in some ways it's a war on retirement. Uh, <laughs> these continuous low rates of return or no rates of return, real return. But you're right, uh, uh, f- for sure. Interest rates have not, they're certainly not signaling. Uh, if you look at the difference between Treasury inflation protected securities and a normal straight uh, nominal bond of Treasury, it's suggesting a little higher inflation, but nothing off the charts so from an expectation standpoint. So, again, I think the, when I started off the show today, it's kind of like everybody's talking about it. I, it's not a day goes by. I don't get asked about inflation from a client perspective. And then I always think of you during these times. I always think, well, Fred's going to say that, well, the market knows all that. I mean, if everybody's talking about it, yeah. everybody knows it. That's probably not the risk. Well, that, 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 that deals with the stock market. It doesn't deal with the intrinsic problem that you could, everyone could know about uh, right. serious inflation in the future, uh, and that's not going to make it go away. It may discount it in terms of the stock market, so, so we still have to deal with the real issues. Where it becomes hard, Ryan, is I've always, I've always felt like, you know, we talk about this 4% rule, and it's whether it's 4 or 4.5%, which is basically a guideline. I would say it's not really something I would do, but it's a reasonable guideline for what you might expect from a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds from a withdrawal rate. And, you know, but the person that uh, did the article, Benham, originally back in, I think, 1990, he said, really, what the, the most worrisome part of inflation is really for retirees, because... Even if higher inflation, you know, you go through a transitory period of higher inflation, that sets the hurdle now from a spending perspective, maybe for the next 20 or 25 years. And it's higher inflation is, is something that we're, we're aware of and have to be aware of for our retired clients, which substantially all of our clients are retired, and most of them are depending on a certain withdrawal rate from their portfolios to enhance their lifestyle. So... Um, you know, I suspect now in our plans, we probably uh, will probably start sitting around talking about maybe we need to slightly increase inflation expectations long term. But inflation does have, I, but, I think, I think for everybody, probably Fred, right? Yeah. It is kind of a tax, isn't it? On everybody, right. but I, I think, think you're, you're hard I, on retirees. I'm not familiar with all your the details of your advice, but I think you, you basically keep people in fairly short term uh, from a fixed bonds. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So from a fixed income producing standpoint that you're asking about, yeah, we, we keep our maturities less than five years typically. Uh, and right now they're, they're 
in the one to two year. Because unexpected inflation would have a very serious say if you're into long-term bonds and all of a sudden the inflation rate unexpectedly jumps from 2% to 6%. Can you you explain that to people? I think people don't (laughs) get that concept. So why would a longer-term bond be uh, more in peril for a sudden, let's just say, a sudden spike in interest rate? Okay, if the interest rate is 2% and you buy a bond, that that amount of money gives you the 2% per year. But if if the interest rates goes up to 6%, uh, that bond is worth a lot less. You can buy a, a, a similar bond for a lot less money with a 6% return to give you the same return. So it's basically what's the value of the return on the asset over a period of time. If the interest rate goes up, the value of the return is is uh, lower in present value. Yeah, and so... It was, That's not a very simple explanation. Well, you know, it's, it's great. Uh, and so what Fred was asking me about is, you know, what if when it comes to inflation from a fixed income perspective, because most of our clients have maybe a, a third or to two-thirds of their money in... Uh, fixed income producing investments such as bonds and uh have you been getting much feedback from clients are they even noticing it's just been pretty stable our fixed income side uh it's never really been an area fixed income really after tax inflation never produces much return it's really there for more stability are, are, are people are we at a stage yet ryan where you're getting any questions of why do we have 30 or 40 or 50 percent in bonds how come we're not more in the stock market than than we have in the past yeah I, I i'm getting the questions but i don't think it's like ramped up so it's by no means like this big change all of a sudden everyone's asking about it i think it is the general question like what's the point of bonds when things are looking good in the stock market let's just own the stuff that's doing really well which is a brilliant strategy until you realize of course there's no way to execute it and there's no way of course to predict what will happen right. in the future so you hold bonds for a reason for stability um, but i think for most people the, the question is probably being prompted just by like What's going on in the news? Well, this, you know, inflation's right. has, you know, this is not my words. This is the words maybe in the media. Inflation has to be going up. It's going to be big with all the money printing. So the question comes out, and we just simply talk about the purpose of the bonds. And uh, like, you know, was brought up, our our bonds, we keep a real low, um, low maturity term. So there's not as much fluctuation in the value based on uh, the change in the interest rate. So. And then within those bonds, the portfolio managers, I mean, they will extend maturities mm-hmm. uh, out towards five years if the yield curve is presenting a reward and a reason for doing that. So we're not always stuck where we are here, but we always favor probably five years or less. Yeah, one thing we, we didn't say, the, the longer the term of the bond, the, the more sensitive it is to interest rates changes right which is what we were talking about without saying and that, and, yeah and that's really where from our philosophy we're saying look you know we have bonds because we want to reduce the fluctuation in the portfolio uh that's one of the purposes for doing so and if you get out to 15 and 20 year bonds longer term bonds you get maybe twice as much fluctuation out of those bonds but you get very little reward over time i mean the difference between a 20 year bond and a in a five-year bond uh, over, you know, 20, 30 years is, is less than a percent a year. It's probably less than yeah. a half percent a year. So there's not a lot of reward for doing it. And what you end up doing is increasing the fluctuation in your portfolio more. And I've always told clients, look, if we're going to inject more fluctuation in the portfolio, we want to get something from it. And if we invest in the great companies of America and the world, well, we can never be certain we're going to get those higher uh, preferred returns, right. uh, but at least we have a chance, and there's a reason then to be in those. Yeah, another reason <laughs> to get into uh, funds as, as opposed to individual bonds. Uh, many years ago, I bought 
I got a bond that had a really good interest rate. Interest yeah. rates fell. Uh, that, that's good news. Yeah. But it was recalled. Yes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, we don't buy callable bonds. Uh, when we talk about callable bonds, and a lot of people, are, especially a lot of muni bonds are callable. There's a lot of bonds that are callable, and I, d- I just never just don't buy them because it's kind of a, a lose-lose situation. If If interest rates go up a bunch you're stuck in a low interest bond if they go down uh, you know they can call them away from you so about the only way you make a callable bond if interest rates stay where they are for the right. next 10 or 15 years we got a question from a listener that i think is something a lot of retirees think about when the market has done well i guess it has recently it says hi paul and this is honest to goodness i didn't make this up um, my wife and i retired two years ago and have been enjoying our dream retirement well good for you i think that's wonderful not a lot of people can say that we met with our financial planner at the beginning of this year to update our financial plan and we are on track to achieve our goals not surprised actually uh, this is me now uh, stepping out of the question you know when the interest rates are fairly stable and the stock market is, is behaving the like it has in the last 12 to 15 months with the stock market rising this year our current balance account balance is around 20% higher than it was at the beginning of the year when we were told we were on track to do everything we want in retirement. My question is this, is it okay to take that 20000 and use it, maybe give it to our kids or buy a boat for the lake house we purchased last year? Guys, people are my hero, Fred. <laughs> Since the remaining amount would still be enough to keep us on track, thanks, Bill. Well, I mean, what's your, what, what say you, Ryan? Yeah, given you know their one comment that they were doing well prior to this gain, um, you know, this might be one of those perfect opportunities to try to harvest some of that and enjoy the fruits of your hard work and your labor and your saving from all those decades of working. Um, You know, what we talk about as advisors when we meet with our clients is trying to enhance our clients' lives to the best ability we can. And this might be one of those really excellent times to do that, to be able to step in and say, we know we accounted for this lifestyle that you define, but you could do a little more now if you want to before maybe, you know, markets change, for example. We never know when they will go up or go down, but if there's a little excess in the in the plan and you will have something that would bring you great joy, whether it's the right. boat or giving to kids, whatever it is, that seems like, you know, no finer time to do it than now. Got to have a boat for the lake house. <laughs> yeah, the way we view it, we have two rules, essentially. We have prosperity rules, which says, look, if your plan is overfunded and we're doing well, uh, you know, you need to enhance your lifestyle uh, in some format. For some people, that's just giving money away, but you should take some action. Your plan is overfunded. Then you need a, a capital preservation rule that says, hey, you know, with the way investments have been in the last period of time, maybe we need to moderate our spending slightly. So you kind of need two of those rules. And I, I think that that prosperity rule, probably what is triggered with this advisor is the pros- what I term a prosperity rule. Uh, that he's saying, look, you could pull this money out and your plan is funded really well as if it never happened. And and I always tell clients, look, you could take it out guilt-free. And usually this is a part of a good process from a financial planning standpoint. I mean, you know, I, I think it's fair to say, Ryan, that when a new client comes in, we basically take a very pessimistic view. I'm a incurable optimist, but that's not how I necessarily invest. I, well, I guess we do invest like optimists, but from a planning perspective, we plan for the worst, and we really assume returns are going to be poor. You're probably going to get a bad order of returns. In other words, what returns you get in the first five to ten years of retirement is basically de- is going to determine a whole lot of your 
complete retirement. So we're going to assume you're going to get bad order of returns along with, you know, bad returns in general. And that you're actually going to live to 93 or 94 and you're actually going to, both of you are going to need long-term care expenses, extraordinary expenses. So you get anything less than horrible returns, it's pretty easy for a plan to become overfunded like this plan sounds like it is. And as I tell clients sometimes, I'll say, look, your portfolio, if it's large enough, could go down $20,000 by the end of today and, it, and your plan's yeah. going to be fine. So I call it, let's, you called it harvest, <laughs> I call it cheating the market a little bit. Hey, let's, let's take some chips off the table. We're, we got chips that we weren't planning on having because we can't count on good returns. Yeah. So I, when they show up, I say I'm a big proponent of do something. Yeah, I, I guess I'll give the negative side here that uh, in terms of pension funds, you have a, a, a funding ratio that your your goal, like in the case of Illinois, is ninety nine percent funded. The problem is if you get above ninety percent, say okay, no no reason to put more money in. Uh, what are you going to do when you you go down? So you, you can't harvest all the gains because you're you're not you're not market timers. You have a a plan, and sometimes you're ahead of this game, and sometimes you're. Uh, sure. Below, and if, if you take out the money every time you're ahead, uh, it, it narrows the, uh, yep. the the your range of uh, protection there. So again, you're not talking about that here, here but in right. general. So what we do is that so the, let's say the prosperity rule says, oh, you know, if your portfolio goes over a million one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, your plan, you're going to have more money than really your current goals uh, at a very high probability, upper. 90 percentile like a chance that you're going to meet or exceed that current plan goals so what we'll do is we'll take it down till it's just below that prosperity line and still keep it at a very high level of confidence that you're going to meet or exceed uh so yeah it's when we talk about gains it's certainly not taking all your gains it's saying how much can we take out and still have a plan that is really well funded and is still prepared to deal with you know, really bad things happening. And, and so we're, we're, I guess we're constantly pessimists from a planning perspective, but we're quick to tell clients when they can, in, you know, increase a goal or add a new goal. Um, I had a couple, uh, I think two weeks ago that came in and I said, look, it's been an incredible period. And I said, uh, you know, uh, you know, you guys can spend a lot more money than you're spending. And they just don't have any additional needs, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. I said, how would you like to give 50000 each to each of your children? And they go, we can do that? I go, well, we could probably give them each a half a million if you really wanted to. But I know you well enough. You're not going to do that. They wouldn't take it. Right. It's going to be all you can do for them to get them to accept the $50,000 each. And I think they walked out floating on a cloud. So why it's important to have be planned like a pessimist when, when things do work out in a favorable way, I, I think. We spend an off. We spend most of our time encouraging clients to either spend more money or give money away. I have a. So I always thought it was kind of a crude way of saying, you know, let's give money to our children and people we love, with warm hands instead of cold hands. And it's not all one or the other. But clients instantly get it when I say that. Um, and so we're always on the lookout for that. And I think that's one of the benefits of having a financial advisor. Again. It doesn't have to be us. We're, so we're not saying we're, you know, when I, I just want to be clear with people that are listening to the show. When I say the advantage of having a financial advisor, it's not saying the advantage of coming to us. It's having a financial advisor. You pick your own. Well, I think you should say having a, a good financial advisor. Well, ha- having a real financial advisor, uh, someone who, who 
who's going to put your interests first, uh, who really doesn't have incentives to put you in investments that you really don't belong in. So, you know, so it's a true what we call a fiduciary in heart, uh, even if they're not a fiduciary by law, just a, just a good person, right? Someone who really is out to protect you. The advantage of that is, you know, when you compare two retirement lives, one it's kind of fraught with turmoil. You're trying to do it yourself. You don't know what this most recent block of time in your performance means to you. And you're looking down at your statement and you're saying, I think this is a lot of money, but I don't know if it's a lot of money. It's a lot of turmoil that comes with that versus having a real financial advisor that has a real plan laid out for you with specific rules for, for when to moderate your spending temporarily and when to step on the gas a bit in your spending. I, I think the, the, the if I ask all my clients in a survey or just line them up all against the wall and said, what's the number one reason you pay us? I think almost to a person they'd say because we don't worry about our money anymore. Mm -hmm. Th those are That's me saying it. I can't prove it. Uh, Maybe you can weigh in on whether I'm exaggerating. I just think it takes a lot of the stress and the second guessing off the table that you don't have to take on yourself because otherwise, it you know if you're let's presume that you're doing uh, your your retirement and managing your funds by yourself as most people do. Half of Americans take care of their own finances in retirement. And don't hire an advisor. Uh, you kind of set yourself up to kind of put yourself on the worry block. Like, am I doing it right? This is such a big deal. I can't. I can't go broke in retirement. I can't afford potentially to have to work hard again. Maybe your health takes a turn and you're, you're physically only able to do so much. So the stakes are big. Uh, so then the worries and the fears can also like really creep in that, gosh, I really, I really got to make sure this is done right. It's a huge responsibility. I mean, you're taking care of your family. Not that it can't be done. We're not right. suggesting everybody's too stupid to do it. We're just saying... You know, there's a, there's trade-offs of everything. Yes, people, most people pay us one percent a year, for. But I always I always think of it as, you know, if we could increase your turns beyond returns beyond, and I don't know that we can or or will, but there's a chance that we might increase your returns zero to one percent above what you might do on your own. Just or we might eliminate somewhere between zero and one percent in mistakes that are so common that people make, just from being human. Um, or maybe we save you somewhere between zero and one percent in time uh, factor. But I mean, any one of them is a home run. But a combination of those three, I think most people feel like it more. You know, the value is is probably multiples of of that fee. But certainly, of course, we feel that way, right? <laughs> of course. But uh, look, this is thirty eight years of doing this. I'm at a point in my life where, you know, where we're fortunate if we never received a new client. Our family, all of us, are just fine. We're delight. I always tell people we're delighted to have new clients, but our life isn't depending on getting new clients. So, you get to it might be ahead. different if you're thirty-five. Well, <laughs> well that's that's true. Uh, but <laughs> that that's true. So I'll speak for myself. Um, so I feel like I can be more blunt and just be more open about the nature of the business and the value of advice. Uh, you know, and it's just what I believe, and it, it's not a provable point. Yeah, and a lot of like and like firms and entities try to quantify the value of advice, and there's a lot of good like papers out there. In the end, you just have to want to have an advisor in your life or not. Yeah. You, you don't hire it because you believe well they can 
they can do X percent better and I should be able to do this long enough time. You have to just want somebody who's going to be there in your corner to give you advice, to maybe talk you down off the ledge during a, a moment of turmoil or just as life shows up, like we talk about, so much of our job as a as a advisor is about helping people during like times where life's curve, curveballs show up. Knowing if you can afford to help a, a family member if they're having a hard time, and is, is that going to impact you negatively in your retirement? Just being able to be a sounding board or, not, or a calm person on the other end of the phone if somebody is like in need of a quick reassurance. Yeah. That, you, that value is, is tremendous. Also, you get some obvious ones, uh, uh, claiming strategies, sure. and tax advantages, things of that sort, which are clear. Yeah, that's kind of the blocking and tackling, yeah. but then but that's, the real but that's clear, clear uh, money ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, yeah. It's, 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 you know, I think I could, my wife said it best. Now, she's, not, she's involved in the business, but not in a way that's on the financial side at all. Well, she does our books and things. And, uh, but she's not involved into the day-to-day, the what business. we do for a living. And, but she gets to hear, she overhears a lot of our conversations. And, and we were, I remember we were all just sitting around talking about, you know, what, what's our value proposition and all this. And my wife just said it. She goes, oh, I, I can tell you what it is. You guys take on a huge responsibility for people. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's the <laughs> simplest explanation that anybody could ever give. And I remember calling my friend Don Beasley down in Georgia. He's a, he's a financial advisor. I said, Don, this is what my wife came up with. You know, I just want to see what you think. He said, I always knew your he's a Southern guy. I always knew your wife was the smartest one of the two of you. She goes, that is genius. I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to run with it. <laughs> so enough about that. Sorry about that. that was a Sorry, fantastic. listeners. Uh, but, you know, we talk about a lot of clinical issues when it comes to f- finance. But at the end of the day, I still believe the real, the real value of, of, of a real financial advisor is someone who, throughout maybe three decades of, retire- decades of retirement, can help you f- provide a framework to make good decisions at every life's transition or turn. Okay, enough of that. Let's get to some real financial planning issues. How about that? Uh, so listener question was, take the money and run, guilt-free, like, like it was never there. So uh, jumping to the younger end of the spectrum now, Ryan, so retirement planning for new parent, parents. We've covered some of this, mm-hmm. uh, but some of the things uh, you know we haven't. Um, I want you to go over, let's see, you're having your third here in September. October, so, maybe September. October. Okay. You know what a good listener I am. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the, hit the highlights of, of new parents, what they might need to think of from a financial responsibility standpoint? Yeah, I think I can speak from uh, maybe even some like failures of my own at the time when I was, you know, first become a parent with my firstborn. And, you know, I wasn't an advisor at this point, but I didn't think about the importance of having to immediately uh, be out of income if I were to get injured or have a disability. And then all of a sudden, how am I going to, you know, take care of my family? I had gone from like a two-person earnings household to uh, one earning household with my wife staying home and caring for a child. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, what if something were to happen to me? I just get in a car wreck or something. So the thought of just making sure you have life insurance in place or disability insurance for short-term issues um, was was really important to address right on the front end. And I, I did that, but I didn't have it prior to having right. my child. It wasn't something I had ever thought about. Uh, I think for most people, it's probably a pretty common thing. And 
as I help uh, friends and colleagues I've worked with in the past, I say, you know, this is something I don't do. I don't sell life insurance, but it's one of the easily most important things you need to consider, if not do today, is make sure you have enough, what I would suggest is term life insurance, low cost, generally very low cost insurance for the, the amount of coverage you might get, should you pass away or in a disability event, having disability insurance to cover your, your fixed costs like your mortgage or your rent to those those costs that you absolutely can't just do away with simply because you're maybe out of work for a and, period of time. And I think most people don't fight you on the life insurance concept. Yeah, that'd be pretty a pretty big hole to fix. Yep. But disability is more likely, yet people are just so reluctant to spend the money on disability insurance, yet it's much more likely. Yeah, certainly. And I think some businesses probably provide a low level of that. Um, you know, you, you know, after maybe six months, you might be able to get on like a, a short-term disability right. plan through your, your work coverage. But yeah, I, I completely agree. I think most people say, well, I've got the big things covered and I can try to weather the storm of the small disability on my own. But you say that and you may not have enough savings in place in your bank account to be able to weather that storm. And that, I think that kind of goes into always having, you know, a substantial amount in like an emergency fund that you could cover your lifestyle needs. Like if you, especially if you don't have disability insurance, like for a short-term disability, you have some, some rainy day money available to you that you're not making back against the wall decisions, pulling money out of your 401k or your IRAs because of a short-term disability. Or just a short, you know, small time where you yeah. need extra funds. What was the market like for disability insurance? We know that term insurance is really uh, low cost now. And yeah, it's a commodity it's, almost. And, but mm-hmm. what about disability? It depends on the kind of insurance you get. Again, granted, I don't sell insurance, so this is kind of tangential to my world. All I can tell you is depending on the type of you get, so you can get insurance based on replacing any amount of income or replacing income <laughs> that's unique to just your job function. It's more or less expensive. Um, I think when it comes to disability, uh, I would would find someone who really understands that, uh, you know, and and you think of the companies that have always had really good policies. I have no affiliation, but I think in Northwestern Mutual, it's very strong disability. Historically, it's not a recommendation to buy it, but uh, I would say there's probably three to five really reliable top high quality companies because there's an intrinsic problem with disability and that is that you know life insurance is pretty clear you either pay or you don't pay right but disability uh, is not a a all or nothing kind of thing and Mm -hmm. and there are questions about what actually constitutes a a disability and exactly and i and i've had to go to bat for clients uh i can think of two or three times when we really had to push uh and provide some pretty detailed information to in order for them to qualify for it so but that's that's when it comes down to like everything the quality of the agent you want an agent that has so much clout with the company you know that they're not going to do anything to make that agent man because he or she carries such a big stick and such a volume of clients when i look for insurance agents i look for somebody that if if I get crossways with, over an insurance claim or something, I have an agent that is strong enough and respected enough inside that company that if they go to bat for me, we might be able to iron out that wrinkle. That's pretty good advice, I think. It is, certainly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think those those two things kind of can weather a lot of the storms that might potentially so come the out. Insurance. Having the insurance and having an emergency fund, just enough cash on hand in a bank account, not invested, just in a, a checking or savings that's there is kind of like an emergency break glass. Uh, those are like two of the big things I think just like that anybody can do relatively inexpensively. It's not it's not free. Right. And everybody wants to invest first, right? Right. Everybody it's wants excitement. Everybody wants to go to step 
you know, three, three or four. Before they yep. take the first two steps of first, you got to lay that foundation to protect your family, uh, you know, pr- protect your income, et cetera. Yep. And, and I think it's it's human nature. It's like I like I said, I talk to people who are friends of mine who have, you know, who've made very nice incomes. And I say, <clears throat> let's take a minute to step back and address a couple of these holes first before we keep going forward again, because it's too easy to to jump just into the investment side of things and then forget the very important foundational items like like the insurance. Would you be, uh, with your younger clients, would you be so principled, eh, probably not the best word, uh, so so rigid, rigid that if if they wanted to invest money with you but you saw that, that they were, family was complete, would you, would, would you be quick to say, look, you got to do these two things first because if you don't do those, I let you do what you want to do. I'm not going to have a, anything good to tell your family why I let you do that. Yeah, I, I certainly am rigid that way. I think the other advisors with us are the same. It's you. You don't want to, you know, unknowingly or knowingly like disservice somebody, and so by, by allowing somebody to not take these like very easy, very foundational steps first, and then allow them to potentially undo themselves later, it doesn't give them any benefit or help. So I certainly would be very staunch against allowing someone to invest with us if they didn't have kind of the the basics of insurance or savings built up first. I have found that that statement, whether it's even a retired couple that that needs to do something or wants to do something that I know is going to be probably horrible for them, but in their minds, human nature-wise, it's something they want to do that probably is going to blow themselves up. They, They don't think about that, but I do. And and they basically want you to be a willing accomplice with right. them and give them permission to do it. And I'll look them square in the eyes and say, well, no, you can't do that. And they'll say, well, well why not? And it's simple. I won't, have any, I won't have an explanation for your children or why I let you do that. I'm not going to have a good, I'm not going to have a good story. I, I have good, and, and for that reason, I'm out. Yep. And I think that puts people in kind of like a, a state of like, oh, wow, this, this really is important. You know, this this is not just one of those flimsy items you can go back and forth on. It's very important. So. I'm, I can't tell you the number of times I've said, well, you can do that if you want, but you have to do one thing. And I'll look at you and say, okay, what's that? You have to tell me where to transfer your account. You need to hire a new advisor because I'm not going to do it. Not for a $10,000 a year fee, not for a $50,000 a year fee. Not regardless, I'm going to let that business walk out the door. I think it's important to, for advisors to basically be that strong but anyway i think we beat that to death um how about tax issues tax breaks i know that's one of them yeah so i think there, there's a couple things that can be you're getting those now right those children having children has become a profitable year i think 2020 <laughs> and 2021 holy cow the amount of you know so that's that why getting. he's having a third right. child Fred. <laughs> ah. it's a prof- it's a profit deal uh no but it it's one of those things that there are advantages in the tax code that so long as you are aware of them, you can take advantage and help yourselves from the tax standpoint. Um, like if you are a, um, a single household and you have to work, and or if you're just a two-person, like a, a couple household and you're both working, you can get child and dependent care credits for the amount of money that you spend to have your kids in daycare or uh, prior to like kindergarten age in like some sort of service to watch them so you and your spouse or you as an individual can work. And depending on the amount of income that you have, uh, you can get upwards of 35% of those costs back in like a tax break. Um, if you make over 43000 for example, it's reduced down to 20% of the costs uh, can be back up to a, you know, can be given back up to a certain amount. So without going into all the 
the details and, and getting rather confusing, just knowing that there are tax breaks available for you if you have your, your kids or a child in daycare because you need to work is something you can easily take advantage of. And I, you know, I try to tell anybody, just, just kind of know what's out there to give yourself a little bit of a leg up. Um, and then for folks who uh, have an option through work, there's a flexible spending account that can allow you to defer dollars pre-tax, so that's the advantage, into an account so that you can cover childcare expenses. And so typically this is a little more advantageous for folks who are in higher tax brackets because it simply allows them to defer more, about $5,000 a year, into this account, which would allow them to just spend this money for those qualified uh, childcare expenses compared to maybe just taking that tax break that we just re referenced earlier. So there's, there's just there's little things out there that can add up, especially over the years. So not, not, you know, not knowing that in advance only puts you at a disservice having kids. Okay. What about, speaking of children, what about if they want to hope for further education beyond high school? Yep. So the greatest thing anyone can do when it comes to investing is to, to start early, uh, you know, with the caveat, of course, that we've talked about, making sure you haven't jumped the steps and, you know, you've taken care of, you know, those foundational needs. But saving for college, I mean, if you start now, you get the ability of compound interest for presumably, you know, 10, 15, or, you know, close to 20 years, depending on when you started uh, saving for your kids. And you can't make that time up. All you can do is save more, which isn't usually always an option if you start saving for a, a child maybe at age 10 or uh, later in life. Um, you put yourself in the best position by saving early. But I, I think that's always one of those yeah. give and takes. Your, like, your, your most powerful investment dollars are your earliest. Yeah. But like and we talk about so much, like, where do we put those monies? Do we put it in the 401k or do we put it in the college savings? Sure, sure. Yeah. And so for so many people, it's like, you know, myself included, there's only fixed number of dollars. You have to make choices. And often There he goes again, Fred. <laughs> he wants a raise again. <laughs> but also you have to, uh, the advice would be where to not just save for college, but how to save for college. And again, the rules have changed just a long time ago, but it used to be you could put assets in your children's name and then pay at a low tax rate. That's, that's gone now. So we have these new arrangements like the 529 plans, things of that sort that are yep. advantageous. Precisely. And, and those are like the, the essentially like the preferred savings vehicle for college because you put the dollars in, uh, they grow tax-free, they come out tax-free, assuming, of course, you use them for qualified education expenses. So it gives you an ability uh, to efficiently fund college. And there's in, in Illinois, at least, there's two sides of the program. One is kind of uh, pure, no load. You go in, it's very inexpensive. And the other path is going through a registered representative or you know, a broker through an investment firm. Um, I don't see any reason to do the latter. I think every, it's easy enough, and the, and the choices are easy enough to go into the Bright Start plan where you can, you can save quite a bit of money by avoiding the advisor side of that one. Yeah. I think that's yeah. an area where really doesn't take a lot of advice. Yep. And they have a de facto kind of uh, of uh, plan where it changes from um, high Age equity. Based. Yeah. yeah, and so generically, if I had, had to give out generic advice, it'd be go just use the you know, Bright Stars age-based index fund platform, and you should, that should, it would be a very reasonable thing uh, to do. Yep, and it just takes a lot of the the worry out of the equation because it's it's going to adjust for you as your child ages and gets closer to college. Okay. So, uh, one then, more. I think the last thing I would say is maybe just like 
kind of having your, your documents in place, making sure that you have estate documents. If you have, you know, if you have a will, if you have power of attorney for both legal and health, making sure those things are there. Uh, you don't want to find yourself in a position where you, you're uh, potentially not having clear direction if you and or your spouse both pass like way earlier than you would ever have, have expected. And then your kids are kind of in this tough position. So just having those legal documents in place is is essential. One last issue. How, how would you prioritize retirement savings versus saving for college? Uh, I'm torn, but I know the right answer. Okay. <laughs> the right answer is to save for retirement. Retirement's uh, a lot longer period. Generally, you're going to be retired for like maybe 25, 30 years or so. So it, you need a lot more uh, momentum and inertia and savings to go into your retirement uh, accounts. So generally, you want to put those dollars in retirement savings first, and then, of course, uh, start funding your 529 plans. So it just, you know, as an as a human, you look at it and say, oh, college is only maybe now 10, 12, 13 years away. Right. Retirement's longer, so I can earn more later, right? Maybe yeah. free by then anyway. Yeah, if you, if you get ahead to like we were talking about earlier, you could always shift from one to the other. So like if your retirement plan is doing better than you expected, you could sure. redirect yeah. things. Yeah. That's a good idea. Uh, Fred, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the next 10 years of, eco- of the economy? Uh, I guess I'm uh, worried in a sense that I, I think we can't continue the current path, but I don't think we will. So, again, I'm optimistic. I'm always optimistic, but I think there's some choices that need to be made, and we can't go the route we've gone the last year or so without making some corrections. Yeah, uh, and 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 – I'm always more worried about Illinois than you are. So we go from the national scene to yeah. the state scene. Is this is is that is that uh, is the amount of money the state's getting uh, from the sti- stimu- from the government or whatever the emergency program? Uh, seems like that's meaningful, but it seems like a lot of strings are attached to it. Well, it's meaningful in a sense that it gets us through the uh, current situation with a lot less pain. But to the extent you build in all the money we're getting to from the uh, federal government, it goes into various kinds of programs, and then. When that money stops coming in, the question is, where does it come from? So it it defers the pain into the future, which is not bad, but the pain is still something you have to worry about. And uh, you, you don't, you know, it seems like Illinois. I'm more pessimistic. I know, uh, but actually, I've, I've changed because of you. Uh, I'm, I'm not nearly yeah. as I don't. I'm not nearly as negative well, about the state of Illinois. I may re- rely too much on these market signals, but right now, uh, just like an economist, <laughs> yeah. they just go straight for the market uh, signals. What no, do you What uh, do you mean by that when you well, say that? Tell people what you mean. Well, the, the market adjusts for good things and bad things, and right now, the state of Illinois can borrow for one percent more than the very best uh, municipal bond issues. So that one percent premium doesn't suggest a huge risk of of uh, default or uh, so it's saying all those overlapping minds are saying well all these millions of people making this decision collectively are saying not that big a risk yeah I mean, again if the person on the street says that i think illinois is going to go bust in three years no one would be lending the state of Illinois money at one percent uh, more than the very best uh, option these are multi-decade problems aren't yeah, they right um and they can they can have a bad end if they're but uh, is your nature that you think that, that there's just natural self-correction because there has well, to be? I, I think that my my prediction of the future is muddled through. Uh, we're never going to solve our problems, but we're never going to fall into the abyss either. No nirvana. 
Well, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. We'll be back the second Tuesday in June for another show. Have a great summer. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.